once in a while, God will bring somebody into your own life that uh, turns out to be a great encouragement to you, a great challenge for you, uh, to you in a certain season of ministry or in life in general. Uh, and Matt Ross is, has been that guy for me over the past couple years. Um, over the past couple years, he has been serving in our, in our high school ministry, leading one of our discipleship groups, groups gosh, teaching on our teaching team. And uh, he's just been a blessing to have around. And I'm excited that you guys get to hear from him as he works through uh, the scriptures this morning. Matt is currently working on his MDiv from uh, Southern Theological Seminary down in Louisville. Uh, he will also uh, be leading our student ministry at our Fort Thomas campus. So we're excited about that for him. There are many, many things that I love about Matt. He loves people. He's fun to be around. Uh, he reads great books that we get to talk about. But if there's one thing I could tell you that I'm excited for you guys to get today is that he loves the gospel. He's passionate about Christ and about Christ what Christ does in the church when he's at work. So friends, if you wouldn't mind giving Matt Ross a very warm welcome this morning. Morning. Well, hey, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just say uh, from the outset uh, what a privilege this is for me to be here this morning. Uh, There have been a number of people over the last couple of years who have uh, encouraged me in my faith, uh, who have walked with me through some uh, difficult times and some some trying times in my life, and uh, and people who have uh, sought the Lord with me and really sought to to see the Lord work in in a merciful way um, in my life and in the lives of others. And so uh, it is a great privilege to be here because uh, I love this church. This church has um, incredibly godly leadership uh, has a great gospel witness and uh, just strong spiritual vitality as a whole. And so uh, it is a great honor for me to uh, stand here and preach to you this morning. Now, you know that over the past couple of months, we've been working through a series, right, entitled Church Matters. Uh, and over that time, we've, we've heard about the significance of the local church and the purposes that it plays uh, in our lives, right? Uh, we've heard about church discipline and how uh, the local congregation uh, really needs that. That's actually a loving thing that uh, produces health within the local church. We've heard about our need as the people of God, as those who have been called out of God's, uh, those who have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, that we need to be the kind of people who not only speak the truth, but to be the kind of people who speak the truth in love. And so this morning I have the privilege and have been given the task of speaking on the topic of the church and its call to risk. The church and its call to risk. And if you've been here at all over the past year, you've heard a vision statement that has reverberated from this pulpit right here and down and trickled down into its various ministries. And that vision statement reads that God would raise up a generation of Christians We have the courage to stand, the confidence to speak up, and the heart to sacrifice because of the truth of God's word, the mission of God's church, and the mercy of God's son, Jesus Christ. But maybe you come in here today, and you hear words, and when you hear these words like boldness, or courage, or uh, even today, risk, uh, it makes you just a little bit nervous, because you would say, and you would tell me that, uh, I'm just not that kind of a person. 
I'm not this kind of gutsy character. As a matter of fact, the most gutsy, uh, risk-taking thing that I've done all week is get together with some buddies and, and play a game of, of chinga, right? The, the blocks and that moment of commotion, when you're pulling that rock out, it produced enough adrenaline in you to last you for the rest of the month. And so you would say, this is, this is just not something for me. But I just want to tell you this morning that my goal today is not to, to give a charge to the troops and to, to rally everybody and, and get you all revved up to go down a Red Bull and go get your bench press on and go watch William Wallace and go uh, take on Braveheart and go conquer the world for Jesus. That's not what I'm here to do necessarily. But the word today, however, is a word that you and I have a soul-satisfying treasure in the gospel that can never be taken away from us. The gospel is so precious, so captivating, and so beautiful that it compels us not only to contend and risk for the sake of the gospel outside of these four walls with men and women who don't know it, but also to risk for the sake of the gospel within these four walls. As different men and women come together under the banner of the gospel to the glory of God that attests to his greatness and renown. And so it's a gospel that's not only worth living for, but it also is a gospel that is worth dying for. And so with that, let's go to our text in Philippians 1. I'm going to be in verse 18, the second half of verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory. In Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that I saw you, that you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. Let's pray together as we dig into God's word. Father, how we long for the day when with Christ we will stand in glory. And Lord, we ask that as we look into your word, you would give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ, raised and reigning. And we pray that this sight of him would 
be used in our lives to make us those who do not lose hope, who do not grow weary, who do not grumble, and who do not complain, but to be the kind of people who take risks, to be the kind of people who sacrifice for others, that the glory of Christ might be seen in our day. And so God, I I ask that you would come. Come, Lord. And do your work in sanctifying your church through the preaching of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2012, hip-hop and R&B artist uh, Bruno Mars was nominated for three different Grammy Awards. Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best Solo Performance of the Year for his song entitled Grenade. And this song not only gives us insights into the heart of Bruno Mars, which I'm sure you're all extremely interested in, um, but it also gives us um, a universal truth that is true for every one of us who has, who has ever lived. And that is that we would sacrifice and we would risk for that which we consider most precious. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what I mean here. In those lyrics, he says that uh, I would catch a grenade for you. I would do anything for you. I would go through all this pain. I would take a bullet right through my brain. Yes, I would die for you, baby. But uh-oh, she's not doing the same. It's very sad, I know. <laughs> but, we see this, but we see this all over uh, today. And I'll go with a local example here. Uh, Pete Rose, who is the all-time hit leader in Major League Baseball and a former Cincinnati Red. He once said, and I quote, Uh, I would walk through hell in a gasoline suit to play baseball. You see, this is uh, something that drove these men. Something drove these men out of their affections. And so, as we come to the Bible, we see men and women who are very different, who not only said risky things, but also did risky things for the cause of God in the world. So let me give a few examples Number one, Joab, the commander of David's army who finds himself surrounded by Amalekites and Syrians. And in a moment of decisiveness, he rallies his troops together and says in 2 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 12, he says, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. This is risk and it was right. Esther, a beautiful Jewish woman, who makes the decision to go to the king on behalf of her people, knowing she could be killed if he doesn't raise his golden scepter. And in a moment of decisiveness, she sends word to Mordecai and says, Go, gather the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, then I perish. Risk on behalf of God and his people. Number three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three Jews living in Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar who refused to bow at the trumpet sound to an image of gold, this false god. And in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18... We hear the words, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is risk. These men and women took risks for the cause of God, for the people of God. And it was right. And so as you look into your bulletin, you see a definition uh, for the word risk. And that definition reads um, that risk can be defined as the exposure to the chance of injury or loss. It's a hazard or dangerous chance. Risk is an exposure to the chance of injury or loss a hazard or dangerous chance. And so as we come to our passage here in Philippians chapter 1, we see arguably the riskiest man in the New Testament and the Apostle Paul. And so I want to look at verses 20 and 21 uh, here and pull out our first truth. And that first truth is that when the gospel is precious to you, when the gospel is precious to you, you will say, to live as Christ and to die as gain, right? Paul says in verses 20 and 21, he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, now in the context of what Paul is writing here, he's, he's most definitely in a jail cell at this point in time. Uh, he's probably in Rome facing a, a, he's thinking a probable meeting maybe with Nero. And he's thinking, I could, I could possibly die in this moment. And so he's writing this letter. Not, uh, he's not writing from some ivory tower. He's not writing from uh, Southern California on the beach. He's not writing from the beach in Florida. right? His, his prompting to the gospel didn't necessarily mean good things for him. But in fact, the gospel meant he would actually suffer and experience hardship. But because Paul was so content and so secure in who he was in Jesus Christ, he was able to say, whether I prosper or whether I uh, am not okay, whether I do well or whether I don't do well, uh, I am content, I am okay. This was a discipline that Paul learned over time. And we see that in chapter 4 of this book, when he says some of the the most famous words that we know in the Christian faith today as evangelicals, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can go through any situation because God in Christ is my eternal security. And so the worst thing that I could possibly do here this morning is come in here and assume the gospel. The worst thing that I could do is come in here and just think that just because this is Grace Fellowship Church uh, and that so many of you are so knowledgeable in the scriptures that uh, you're somehow on the dean's list in the school of gospel. That just because your pastor is Brad Bigney who is in fact, a gospel Yoda, uh, that I can just come in here and just assume that you're all perfectly wound up in the gospel. But let me, let me ask you a few questions to just debunk that thought. Why is it that you struggle so much with insecurity? Why is it, men, that when you go to your job or you, you go home with your family, you feel this discontentment and dissatisfaction about your own life? Why is it, men, that you're prompted to look at pornography because uh, that woman that you've committed your life to just, just isn't making the cut? Why is it that you feel the sense of, I, I want something more for my life. I'm, I'm not okay with this. For you ladies in the room, 
Why is it that you feel the need to compete with other women all the time? Why is it that when you look on your your Facebook or your Twitter or your Instagram or whatever it is, that you feel this sense of of discontentment and an unsatisfying sense of your own life? Why is it that you can't be okay with what you have? Why in that moment of opportunity, when you have the chance to share your faith, you feel yourself backing away in fear, even though you have the chance to say something, because you're afraid that person is going to think that you're some weirdo Bible thumper? Why is it that when the disappointments of life come, you're so unable to find any kind of happiness, that because that plan or that person or that thing didn't work out in the way that you thought it would, that you're restless in your soul and you can't sleep at night? You see, all of these instances demonstrate a lack of gospel-centeredness, a lack of gospel security and identity, satisfaction. But this wasn't the case for Paul, right? He's saying that whatever circumstance I find myself in, my goal in life is no longer to promote myself, but my goal in life is to promote Jesus Christ. I live to magnify Christ. And so whether I live or whether I die, I live to magnify and make the name of Jesus Christ great in the world. That was Paul's ambition in life. And so as we come to this text and we hear the words, for to me, I want us to pause here and to consider who it is that's saying these words. I want to pause here and consider who this this man Paul was and why he could be uh, so compelled to say something like this, something so provocative in this way that he would say, I'm so secure in Christ. That, that to live is Christ and, and to die would be, would be better for me. And so with that, let's, let's flip back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And I want to look at verses 1 through 8. Luke writes, But Saul, who would later become Paul, Saul of Tarsus, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, so let's pause here. Let's pause here in the story. Because prior to Paul's conversion to Christianity, he was not that kid in the youth group who was rocking his Jesus t-shirts. He wasn't that kid who grew up in the youth group wearing the the WWJD bracelets. You see, Paul, prior to his Christian conversion, was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. He was a man who was making his way up the established pecking order in the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was a man who knew the scriptures very well. He was very intellectual. And he would have known Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, probably sealed in the back of his mind. And so when he heard about these people who walked in the way, he wasn't indifferent to it. It, it moved him to, to, to anger and frustration. It ticked these people off. And in fact, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we meet the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and we see Paul there. And Paul is not just standing there as a bystander. He says, I'm, I'm there with you. And, he's, and I have the, the impression that he sat there and watched that probably with a smile on his face thinking this is right. Because I know, I know these words. And these people that are, that are speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, saying that this is Jesus, 
that the Christ is Jesus of Nazareth out of these scriptures? This is blasphemous. This isn't right. This is a perversion of the word of God. And so Paul here is not considering the claims of Christianity. He's not on the Damascus road flipping through Tim Keller's reasons for God. He's not walking on the Damascus road, walking through Wayne Grudem's systematic theologies and thinking to himself, I wonder if any of this could could be true. He's not considering the claims of Christianity. He was adamantly against Christianity and he wanted it to be put to death. But let's let's pick it back up there at Acts chapter 9. Luke says, and, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, this is, this is affection, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You see, in this moment, God chose to not treat Saul of Tarsus like he deserved He chose in his sovereign grace to give Saul of Tarsus what he never, ever, ever could have deserved. He he gave him a gift by knocking him off of his high horse on this road to Damascus. And in that moment when Paul encounters Jesus, his life is changed forever. The trajectory of his life is forever changed. This is authority. This is divine authority. This is sovereign grace. And so let me ask you today, whether you come in here and you've been walking with the Lord for decades, or whether you come in here today and you would consider yourself a skeptic, what is it that you prize in your life? What is it that you consider most precious? What is it that you are willing to risk for? What is it that you're willing to sacrifice for? Whether it be sex or money or the pursuit of a, of a good career or the American dream. What is life to you? And Christian, for you, are you amazed when you see this text? Are you blown away by the grace of God as revealed in Jesus Christ? To know that the words of Isaiah 59.1 are true when he, when he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Right? God is not up in heaven as some kind of T-Rex who's, you know, the T-Rex can't lean over and grab anything because his arms are so short. No, God can plunge into the depths of sin and ruin, and he can pluck out anybody he chooses to. Amen. And this is sovereign, divine grace. Do you marvel at this kind of grace? Do you marvel at this kind of grace in your own life? That God who is not obligated to show you any kind of favor chose, chose to give his son on your behalf. This is amazing grace. And Paul knew this. He says in 1 Timothy 1, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is amazing. But as we go and turn back into our text in Philippians, Paul works through whether it would be better for him to live or to die, whether it would be better for him to to go and to be with Christ, as though he admits that would be better for him. Uh, But then he also says it would be better for me to stay here because 
I'm going to help to continue to build up this church, to uh, encourage these people and see uh, churches planted for the glory of God. But look at verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the, of the gospel of Christ. So let me tell you what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying that you can somehow be worthy of Christ. None of us are worthy, right? That's the truth. We're not worthy of his favor. We're worthy of his disfavor. We're worthy of his condemnation. We're worthy of his wrath. That's all we deserve. Romans 3.10 says that none is righteous. No, not even one. But what Paul is saying here, and I'm going to bust out some Greek on you, and I do this because I believe it's actually helpful But there's one word behind the phrase, only let your manner of life. It's actually one word there, and it's the word politoumai. And so think when you hear that word politics or police or uh, uh, state or uh, city of being. And so what he's saying is conduct yourselves as a citizen. Uh, Act as a citizen. And so what that means is that he's saying Jesus Christ is The ultimate goal. Jesus Christ is so precious. Jesus Christ is so glorious. Now, live like he is. Live like he's the biggest thing in your life. And he makes two distinct markers for us that show us what it means for Christ to be magnified. For Christ to look big and mighty. He says that, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so that brings out my, my second truth here for us today. And that is that the gospel, and I know this is saying something here as we're all in church, but, but the gospel will always, always, always drive you into the local church. The, the gospel always drives you to the church, right? And in spite of what anybody has to say about the church today... Uh, The church does matter. The church matters. The church, in fact, is vital for us. And Paul is calling these different people to come together who are of different backgrounds and to unite standing together in one spirit and in one mind. And I've got to say that at this point, this is hard, right? This is hard in the early church, and it's hard for churches today. As we look out over the the demographic of the evangelical church, uh, we see churches today that are in disunity. There are churches that are splitting. There are churches that are at war with one another from the inside. And this, this makes the gospel look incredibly weak. But if you look back into Acts chapter 16, and I don't want you to go there now, but if you have time later today, I would encourage you to read that chapter. Uh, Because who you're going to see in in Acts chapter 16 is three different characters who were uh, distinct in the establishment of this church. Uh, The first person that you're going to meet in that chapter is a woman named Lydia. And she was a seller of purple goods. Uh, She was kind of a fashionista of her day. And she uh, was very wealthy. And she um, actually had multiple homes and Paul stayed with her for a time in that house. But you're also going to meet a slave girl who Paul encountered on that way. And a jailer who nearly committed suicide in front of him. 
But in the moment when those doors opened, Paul was there. And in that moment of opportunity, he was able to share Christ with that man. And so he came to faith. And so as Paul is, is encouraging and exhorting these people to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, I think he has some of these people in mind. I think he has these people in his mind. I love this quote from Dennis Johnson in his book, The Message of Acts and the History of Redemption. And he says that God alone has the wisdom, power, and grace to weave the tangled threads of different people with different cultures, customs, and languages into a single tapestry of glorious beauty. God alone can take people of of different backgrounds, of different cultures, of different uh, pieces, people who are very different, and he can weave them together as one, as the body of Christ, to his glory. And so when I look across this room this morning, I see people who are very different. I see some people in here who um, come from very different backgrounds, from different generations, all together. And I'm not sure that there's anything that would have brought us together this morning apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I really don't. I don't think there's anything that would have brought all of you together into one room this morning Accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a, is a beautiful reality. That's a beautiful thing. But I'm also sure that I'm not the only person who has ever left a small group or something here at church and thought to uh, myself that uh, that was a little bit awkward. Or, or that was a little bit hard for me. That, that person that I've been trying to connect with in that small group is really difficult for me to, to engage or that lady over there who is older and I don't really understand her and she kind of stinks and has a stench to her. I have a hard time wanting to go there because of that. But I want to I encourage you this morning that instead of being the person who backs away in that situation, the gospel of Jesus Christ should actually compel you to, to step into that space and to be the kind of person who loves people and loves different kinds of people because that's what the church is made up of. The church is supposed to be made up of different kinds of people. It's supposed to be against your preferences and what you like. It's all of these different kinds of people together. And I love this word from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. And he gives us a picture of what heaven uh, will look like one day. He says in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So heaven is going to be this place where there are different kinds of people from all walks of life, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And they're going to be woven together because of the blood that was shed by the Lamb. The gospel. But I want to speak to the, to the person here today who would say that uh, I struggle with connecting with people in the church. I struggle with making relationships because uh, I've been in church before. Uh, I had a pastor who who made promises and who said things to me and who bailed eventually. 
Or I had friends and I had Christian people in my life at one time who I became vulnerable with and I allowed to, to know maybe the deepest and darkest things about who I am. And I thought that they were, they were going to be with me. I thought that they would stick with me. These were friends of mine. And they bailed. And they bailed on you. I want to speak to that person because all of this doesn't come without a risk. You see, Paul knew relational pain in ministry. I know relational pain in ministry. I'll tell you personally that some of the, some of the deepest pain that I've experienced in my life has come from men and women who pro- pro- proclaimed a faith in Jesus Christ. And that's okay. That's okay. It didn't stop Paul. Because we read in the Bible that there was a man named Demas who deserted Paul. We read in the Bible that there was an Alexander the coppersmith who did incredible harm to Paul. We see in the Bible that at times Paul stood alone and that he was completely deserted. But none of that, none of that stopped Paul from pursuing uh, the church. It didn't stop him from serving or loving or seeking to build up the church. Because Paul always had the right perspective of the people of God. Uh, we know, right, uh, that we are justified. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are once and for all justified in Christ and in Christ alone, nothing else. But then we are sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And in the end, eventually, one day, on that glorious day, we will stand with him in glory. And if you look all throughout the letters of Paul, you're going to see a common theme with him, and that's that he's always pointing to that day. That there is a day coming. And that was the lens by which he viewed the people of God. So he could step into the church. And he could step into that mess. He could step into that Lydia or that Philippian jailer. That guy who was about to commit suicide. He could step into that mess because he knew that he who began a good work in you, as he says earlier in this chapter, he's going to bring it to completion on the day of Christ. That's going to come. And that was the lens by which he viewed people. That compelled him to love people, to risk, and to be a sacrificial lover of the people of God. And so I love love this quote by Timothy Lane. He writes in his book, Relationships, a Mess Worth Making. He says, this side of heaven, relationships and ministry are always shaped in the forge of struggle. None of us get to relate to perfect people or avoid the effects of the fall on the work we attempt to do. Yet amid the mess, we find the highest joys of relationship and ministry. You see, relationship amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how different you think they might be than you, regardless of how little you have in common, you actually have the greatest thing in common. Because more, what runs deeper in your veins than even your, your genealogy or your family history is that the fact that you are a, a part of the body of Christ, you're part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I don't have to be so afraid of that person who's so different than me. I can, I can see that woman who's very awkward or, or who's, who, who I just don't understand. And I can step into that space and I can love. And I can love with a Christ-like love. And God receives much, much glory in that. But finally, I want us to see here in Philippians 1, these words from Paul in 27, the second half of 27 and on through 30. He says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
Because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. And that brings out this last truth that I want us to see, and that is that the gospel always calls us out of fear and into mission. It calls us out of fear and into mission. Because what Paul is not saying here in that, in that word, striving, striving for the faith of the gospel, uh, is not that we need to go into the, pl- into the prayer closet and, and kind of um, give an introspective look at the church and, and contend for the gospel in that way. Because he says in this letter, he says that you need to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, I'm sure that we all know here that, that there are opponents of the gospel. Right? We look out on a culture that, quite honestly, might scare us half to death. And we think, I, I, can't, I can't possibly say that I'm a Christian. I can't, I can't possibly say I'm associated with those people. This, this scares me. What might I lose? What will I lose if I, if I say I'm a Christian? There are opponents of the gospel today. We know that. But Paul, in this word striving, he says striving side by, fi- side, by side for the faith of the gospel, um, he's actually saying something quite different, something outward, something external. And that Greek word there, striving, is the word soon athleto. And that word soon, it just means together, and that word athleto, what does, what does that sound like? Athletics, right? And so that word there is used three different times in the New Testament. And each time that word, uh, it comes out like this, to strive or to compete or to labor. And so that means that we have to exhort effort. We have to give discipline. We have to show endurance as we seek to strive for the faith of the gospel. right? Because this is what Paul was ultimately about. right? He says, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice because this bondage and this pain and this struggle that I find myself in, as bad as it is, I'm, I'm actually okay with it because it's serving for the advancement of the gospel, right? My friends are actually becoming emboldened by all of this. They see me in my chains and in my imprisonment, and it's, it's causing them to step out and to speak even more boldly and boldly about Jesus Christ. And so as we look to Christ Right? We have to be the kind of people who don't just have this gospel that we, that we hold up together. We don't, just, we, just, we don't just want to make this some introspective thing. Right? Because the gospel always compels us outward. It's always going to compel you out into mission. And so let me, let me ask you, really, honestly, what is precious to you? What is precious to you? What do you prize above everything? Because we all know that apart from that one person who came into your life, I don't know who it might be, whether it was a Sunday school teacher, whether it was a pastor, whether it was your your mother or your father, or whether it was a, a campus minister of a college ministry, whatever it might be, somebody that you know chose to make the decision to, to risk and to step into that space with you. They risked it. They risked looking like a fool for the cause of the gospel. And in some crazy turn of events, right, Jesus Christ gripped your heart and faith ignited in you. You were regenerate. You believed. And, it, and just like Paul, it changed everything for you. It changed your entire view of the world. And so I, I want to tell this story here at this point. Um, 
When I, was, when I was in high school, I made the decision to run cross-country my senior year in high school. And I would love to tell you that I was an incredible cross-country runner. I wasn't. I was very mediocre at best. Uh, I ran uh, a 5K in maybe 25 or so minutes. And uh, there were guys who ran that race in like 15 minutes. Those guys were like Ethiopian freaks. I don't, I don't know where that came from. Um, but I learned... Right? I learned in that year um, that you have, to, you have to be a person who paces yourself. You have to run your race. Because that first, that first race that I ran, I'll tell you, as you're going up and down the cross-country trails, and I was making my way through the woods, uh, that first mile from the, from the starting line, you know what I did? I really wanted to stand out, so what do you think I did? I sprinted. I sprinted that first mile, and it was like, Mom, take a picture of me. I'm out in front in that first mile. But you know where I finished? Walking about this fast. That's where I was at. And so there's, there's a pace to the Christian life. There's, there's, this, there's this endurance to the Christian life. There's this endurance for us as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And chances are, right, most of us probably aren't going to be William Carey. Most of us probably won't be the next Jim Elliot or even the Apostle Paul. But if you are a Christian here today, you are called to be an athlete for the advancement of the gospel. You're called to get in the game. So whether you're an 80-year-old man, whether you're a 7-year-old in here, you're called, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to step into this. We have a place and we have something to risk for, right? We have a gospel so precious that it compels us outward into our mission field. I love these words from Paul. Look at, look at Paul's life. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, he says, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Right? What, was, what was the common word in that text? Danger. Why, why was Paul so willing to go out into the danger? Was it because he was some bold freak? Is it because he was that William Wallace? Was it because he, he was that Braveheart kind of guy? I don't, I don't think so. I think it was because Paul was so, he was so consumed with the person of Jesus Christ. Right? He said, Christ is my life. Not sex, not money, not the American dream, not that future, not that marriage, not whatever it might be. Christ is my life. Christ is the end. Christ is the end goal for us. And when that is your ambition, right, no matter what I do, no matter where God puts me in this life, whether it's that cubicle that I'm in and I'm, I'm chained to that guy next to me, right? Paul, was, Paul did that. He found himself in jail and he was, chained, he was chained next to a brother who he didn't know. And what did he do? Prison ministry, right? Wherever he went. He didn't stop talking about Jesus. He couldn't stop talking about Jesus. He loved Jesus Christ, it was the prize, it was the goal, it was the ambition of his life. 
So I want you to hear these words from our Savior himself. He says in Luke 9, 24, he says, For whoever would save his life, whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. Will save it. Right? Because if you are in Christ here today, you have an identity. You have an eternal security. There's, there's nothing that you need to be afraid of. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? That they cut off your head? Well, guess what? In eternity, Jesus puts heads back on. Right? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? That you would be judged? That they would view you in some condemning way? Great! In the book of Acts, they, the, these disciples say, praise God that I was, that I was called this. That I was, I was blessed to be called this. This is a good thing that I was called this. It's not a bad thing. And so you need, to, you need to learn, as Paul did, to learn to rest in who you are in Christ. To be secure in who you are in Jesus. And I love, I love this church because it gives such easy on-ramps into this. And so let me ask you a, qu- a couple of questions. What if, what if you made the decision... That instead of, of coming here, and this is a great place, this is a, a big, comfortable building, there's a great preacher, there's wonderful worship, we love to come here, right? But what if, instead of, of coming here, you made the decision that you were going to step out for the advancement of the gospel? And you said, I'm, I'm going to go to that Fort Thomas campus, and I'm going to invest myself there. What if you made that decision, not, not because it's, it's super sexy, but because the gospel is precious to you? What if you made that decision? What if, instead of of pulling back and being that guy who kind of shows up occasionally to small group, you made the decision that you were going to show up every week? And regardless of how awkward those people might be or how, how rough that was for you that week, you said, because the gospel is true to me and because I can see these people through the lens of the gospel, I'm going to love them. I'm going to step into that space no matter how awkward it is. Because I know the end goal. I know the end of this game. I know how this all turns out in the end. What if you made the decision to attend a counseling and discipleship training weekend? Because you were a person who says, look, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing in handling this gospel. All I know is that I've been gripped by it. All I know is that I'm saved by it. And so I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go to this and I'm going to learn as much as I can because, because I love Jesus Christ and that gospel has compelled me to love other people. It's compelled me outward. It's drawing me that way. Not because I have to. I mean, gosh, that is the worst motivation that I've ever heard. That I have to do this. You know, you know what we get to do? We get to do this. Amen. This is a privilege to suffer. This is a privilege to step out and to be Jesus for other people. And so what if... What if instead of, of saving up for that next trinket or that next uh, toy that's going to end up on the, on the garbage can, it's going to end up in the dumpster, you decided to take a risk and you said, I'm going to give my money away. I'm going to let money flow through my hands. Not because, not because I, I just have to do this. Not because I'm obligated to do this. But because Christ is my treasure and I want to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth. I want to give this away because Christ is my life. What would you do? What would you risk? What might God be telling you and prompting you to? But I want to say that risk is right. 
Risk is right for the cause of God. Risk is not always right necessarily. But for the purposes of God, risk will always be right. Because even if you lose, it's not a loss in the end. Because a hundred years from now, 500 years from now, 10,000 years from now, when we are with Christ in glory, what's it going to matter? And so I want to I close with this word from C.T. Studd. He wrote this nearly 200 years ago, and this is what he writes. He says, Give me, Father, a purpose deep, and joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you God, that in your, in your divine grace, God, you have chosen to give us your Son. And God, when you show us that, when you reveal yourself to us in that way, it always causes us to see that as, as more important than anything. It causes us to let go of all the things that we, that we so prize, that are so much lesser than the person of Jesus. And so God, I pray. I pray for this church and I pray for these men and women here today that we would be people who are constantly plunging ourselves into the person and work of Christ to find identity, to find security, to find ourselves in him. Because whoever would lose his life, whoever would lose his life for the sake of the gospel, it's him who finds it. And so God, make us those who are, who are risk takers, who are willing to step out for the advancement of the gospel in this church and out in the world. I pray it to your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen.